Well, good morning once again. Today's sermon is entitled Symbols and Meanings. And over the past week in BBS, we talked a lot about foundational Christianity, Christian identity, if you will. Identity is important because identity lets us know who we are and what we are about. For Christians, there are and have been numerous ways that we've used to identify ourselves. And one of the most common ways is by using symbols. Symbols. Throughout the history of Christianity, there have been a number of symbols used to help identify us to other Christians and also to identify us to non-Christians. And one of the earliest symbols, dating back to the late 2nd century AD, that was used by early Christians was the symbol of the fish, the fish. The symbol is known as the sign of the fish, or maybe you know it as the Jesus fish. And in the early church, this symbol held the most sacred significance. And Christians used this secret symbol to recognize churches and also other followers of Jesus because at that time they were being persecuted by Rome. Active persecution. And so the early development of the Christian church often had to take place behind the scenes because the religion itself was outlawed. Christianity has a humble and underground beginning. But why, of all symbols, would they choose a fish to represent themselves, to represent their identity? You know, some have said the fish represents Christianity because of the well-known story, one of which we talked about this past week at VBS, of Jesus feeding with fish, multiplying the fish, feeding his hearers, feeding his followers. Others have claimed it's because, well, many of the disciples were fishermen, and then Jesus asked them to become fishers of men. But I think that there's a little bit more behind this, and I want to share with you today a a deeper and more symbolic meaning to this symbol. The word for fish in Koine Greek, which is the language that the New Testament is translated from, um, it's ichthys, ichthys. And if you look up there, you can, oh, am I not connected, guys? Do I need to do something on my end? All right, there you go. So you all, you can see those, those symbols. Maybe some of you recognize them. I know that if Don was here, he would recognize them right away. Um, but these are, these are Greek letters, Koine Greek letters. And they are the letter Yoda, Ki, Theta, Upsilon, and Sigma. And while these Greek letters spell out the Greek word ichthys, or the word that we know as fish, it's also an acronym that was used. And the acronym is simply Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. Jesus Christ, Son of God, our Savior. So there's more to this fish meets the eye. 
And according to tradition, ancient Christians during their persecution by the Roman Empire in the first few centuries after Christ, they used this symbol of the fish to mark their meeting places and tombs and to also distinguish friends from foes. One of the editors of Christianity Today had this to say in 2008. According to one ancient story, when a Christian met a stranger in the road, the Christian sometimes drew one arc of the simple fish outline in the dirt. If the stranger drew the other arc, both believers knew that they were in good company. Current bumper sticker and business card uses of the fish hearken back to this practice. But at some point in time, a change was made. And within Christianity, another symbol supplanted the symbol of a fish. It's the symbol of the cross. And we're we're all pretty familiar with this. Every time you walk into this sanctuary, you see it right back there. But Christians did not make explicit pictures of the crucifixion for about 400 years after Christ's death. And there are various possible explanations for this, and a theological reason could be because the early Christians emphasized Christ's resurrection more so than his crucifixion. But a historical reason may help us to find a clearer answer here. Constantine, he famously claimed to have seen a vision of the cross up in the sky during the Battle of Milvian Bridge. And then he converted to Christianity. And after he converted to Christianity in the fourth century, he abolished the death penalty by the cross. And Christianity was no longer outlawed. It no longer had to be underground. And he continued to promote the cross as the symbol of the Christian faith. The cross as a symbol became immensely popular in Christian art and funerary monuments from 350 AD and onward to the present day. The Jewish Encyclopedia has this to say, the cross as a Christian symbol or seal came into use at least as early as the second century. And the marking of a cross upon the forehead and the chest was regarded as a talisman against the powers of demons. Accordingly, the Christian fathers had to defend themselves as early as the second century against the charge of being worshipers of the cross, as may be learned from Tertullian. Christians used to swear by the power of the cross. John Stott, famed Christian author and theologian, said this, early Christians commemorate as central to their understanding of Jesus neither his birth, nor his youth, neither his teaching nor his service, neither his resurrection nor his reign, nor his gift of the Spirit, but his death, his crucifixion. So I would like to give you a little more context to show us how we got to where we are today concerning symbols, and specifically the symbol of the cross, by giving you a brief run-through of the history of Christianity in connection with this symbol. For several centuries after Constantine, Christian devotion to the cross centered on the victory of Christ over the powers of evil and death. 
and realistic portrayals of his suffering, they were sort of shied away from. They were avoided. The earliest crucifixes, which a, a, the difference between a cross and a crucifix is this is a cross and a crucifix depicts Christ still on the cross. So the earliest crucifixes depict Christ alive with eyes open, arms extended, his Godhead manifest, even though he is pierced and dead in his manhood. But then by the ninth century, artists began to stress the realistic aspects of Christ's suffering and death. Subsequently, Western portrayals of the crucifixion, whether painted or carved, exhibited an increasing finesse in the suggestion of pain and agony. Romanesque crucifixes often show a royal crown upon Christ's heads, while later Gothic types replaced it with a crown of thorns. In the 20th century, a new emphasis emerged in Roman Catholicism, especially for crucifixes in liturgical settings. Christ on the cross is crowned and vested as king and priest, and the marks of his suffering were once again made less prominent. After the 16th century Protestant Reformation, the Lutherans generally retained the ornamental and ceremonial use of the cross. The Reformed churches, however, resisted such uses of the cross until the 20th century, when ornamental crosses on church buildings and on communion tables began to appear, and we are quite familiar with that. The Church of England retained the ceremonial signing with the cross and the rite of baptism, and since the mid-19th century, Anglican churches have witnessed a revival of the use of the cross. The crucifix, however, is almost entirely confined to private devotional use. Today, we can't get away from this symbol, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And not just when you're talking about Christians and church settings, not just in churches and cathedrals, but in homes, in movies, in paintings, even in music videos and on clothing. You see the symbol of the cross just about everywhere. And of course, it's worn too as, as earrings, as necklaces stitched or studded onto leather and denim. And what, I mean, what, what would huge corporations like Coca-Cola and McDonald's not give to have a symbol like that, that everybody knows, that everybody wears? But does this symbol really define who we are? Does this symbol really define who we are? Does simply wearing a cross around your neck or putting it on the top of a church, does this change or affect our actual character? Does a mere symbol change our heart? These two symbols, the fish, the cross, they've been associated with Christianity for centuries the fish was used to help Christians identify other Christians, and the cross was mostly used to help non-Christians identify who the Christians were. But are there better ways to show the world that we are followers of Christ? Jesus had this to say, John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. 
It's not about a fish or crosses. It's not about a simple symbol. It's about love, right? And I mean, for those of us that, that understand the symbol of the cross, we realize that that whole symbol is rooted in love, right? The fact that Christ went to the cross for us was because of love. His blood was spilled to wash away our sins because he loved us so much. But not everybody outside of Christianity will pick up on all of that. We can't trust that everybody knows the inner workings and language behind symbols. Love, it comes from the heart. It's not a mere emotion, it's a choice. And that's what makes it so powerful. It can't be faked. It can't be coerced. It's a choice. The Bible tells us that our heart, though, our hearts are deceitfully and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that. That is our natural state in this sinful world. Love cannot come from a wicked heart. But the Bible doesn't leave us without hope. We see that, and it is true, but there's more to the story. In the book of Ezekiel, God says this, Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Wow, what a promise. What a promise. When we give our lives to God, he gives his life to us. Through his spirit, the life of Christ is ours. And because of that, we can have the mind and the character of Christ. It could be ours. We can have the heart of Christ with it. And true, agape love. In order to love, we have to just accept. We have to accept this new heart that Christ is offering to us. Now, you might be asking, yes, I see that love is important, but it isn't that important, is it? Aren't there things more important than love? Things like our knowledge of the Bible, our understanding of prophecy, right living, healthy living, worshiping on the right day. Yes, these things may be important, but they are not the most important Don't believe me? Let's see if the Bible can clear some things up for us. Colossians 3.14, it says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I like that. The bond of perfection. It's important to understand the context here. When Paul says, above all these things, we will miss the point and we won't understand what he's saying if we don't have an understanding of what all these things are that Paul is talking about. So in the preceding 13 verses, Paul speaks on carnal living. That sums up what he talks about. He talks about or against fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and even racism. These are grievous sins. And we should work to remove these things from our lives. But 
Paul wants to make sure that we are seeing things in perspective. Perspective is powerful. It's important to work on our own lives, but above all these things, put on love. Put on love. That's got to be our foundation. Your life can look perfect on the outside, but if you've got no love, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Just look at the Pharisees. Models of right behavior. Everything looked right on the outside, but they lacked love. Jesus, he called them whitewashed tombs, looking real beautiful, clean, ornate, respectable on the outside, but the inside, just dry, dead bones, a stench, rottenness. Peter had something similar to say in his first epistle. 1 Peter 4, 8, and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Once again, context is key. What are the all things that Peter is talking about in this verse? In the preceding three verses, Peter speaks on the many lusts of the flesh. Similar conversation that Paul was was having. He mentions lewdness, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And he emphasized the importance of needing to be serious and watchful in our prayers. Yet, when it was all laid out, he said that love for one another is above all these things. He even goes so far to say that love will cover a multitude of sins. That is the power of love. And thank God for that. Because when you think about the gospel, when you think about the good news, when you think about what Jesus did on the cross and what that symbol means to us, it's the fact that Jesus loved us so much that he died for us and now his blood shed in love can cover a multitude of all of our sins. This verse is foundational to the gospel. I love this verse. But I want to look at something else that Paul said. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul speaks on a number of very important topics. But in 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, faith and hope are good things, right? I mean, the Bible tells us those are both gifts given to us by God. Paul isn't throwing those to the side. They are integral pieces of the Christian faith. Yet Paul is making the distinction that love is the greatest of those three. Jesus agreed. Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, when Jesus says this is first, he uses the Greek word protos. Protos. And the definition of this word means first in time or place, 
but it also has another meaning, and it has to do with rank, with rank, a.k.a. greatest, a.k.a. most important. Love needs to be first and foremost in the life of every Christian, every Christian, every word, every action, every belief, every good deed done, every commandment obeyed, they all need to come from the root of love. We can do a lot of things out of fear, but that doesn't last. And it's not a good motivator. This idea that is so clear throughout the Bible The fact that love is most important, that love needs to be the root of everything we think and do, it doesn't come naturally. Like, let's just be honest. It doesn't come naturally. And this is why we need a new heart. And this is why God promised it to us, to give us hope, to realize that even though we don't have the power in and of ourselves, God will step in and offer that to us through a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. God is the best heart transplant surgeon in the entire universe. When we're in his hands, when we're on his operating table, that's the best place to be. Luke 6:35 But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Again, <laughs> this doesn't come naturally to us. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that's how we like to roll. And the truth is, with a heart of stone, this is not possible. It's not possible. We can't do it. But with a new heart, this radical way of living out love is possible. It's possible. You know, I I don't want to just be known as the church that has a cross on its steeple. I don't want to be known as just the church that has the most Jesus fish bumper stickers in the parking lot. I don't want that to be my full identity. I don't even want to be known as the church that worships on Saturday or has the most understanding about Bible prophecy or still gets together in the summertime and has camp meetings when everybody else has stopped doing that. These are good things. But is that our whole identity? In some of the world, that's what they know us for, right? As Adventists, that's what we are known for. But I'd much rather be known as the church that is the most loving, the most loving. I want our love for one another into the world to be so great that anybody that steps into this building, anybody that comes in connection with us cannot deny the fact and the power behind it that we are followers of Christ. That's what I want to be known for. So will you make a commitment with me today? Make a commitment to yourself. Make a commitment to your church family. 
make a commitment to your Lord and Savior, that your Christian walk will not be defined by mere symbols or mere knowledge, but instead by a new heart given to you by God. A heart that makes the impossible possible. A heart that makes you love your enemies, even those that persecute you and treat you wrongly. This is hard stuff. But Jesus never promised that life as a Christian, life as his follower was going to be easy. But he did promise that we wouldn't have to do it alone. We wouldn't have to do it in our own power. So if you want to make that commitment... Make that commitment that your identity is rooted in Christ's love. I just ask that you would stand with me this morning. Just stand with me this morning. I'd also like to invite Ellie forward. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have our closing prayer here. But also, we've, we've started this new tradition. And so after my closing prayer... The, el- the platform elder for today, Ellie, and myself will be waiting up here. If you have any special prayer requests, you need special prayer. You need a listening ear. We want to be up here as, as leaders and your servants to hear you, to pray with you. So I'll have a closing prayer, and you all are all free to move on your, your merry way. But if any of you want to stick around, Ellie will be down here, and I'll be on this side. Come talk with us. We'd love to pray with you. Would you bow your heads with me? Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Because of him, we have hope. Because of him, we have an example. We know what love is. And Lord, you know all of the parts of our lives that build up stones in our chest. And Lord, we want to give those to you. We want to open ourselves up to you, allowing you to come in and do the surgery that is necessary so that you can take these hearts of stones. You can take these selfish ideas, these hateful attitudes that we struggle with, and you'd replace them with a flesh heart rooted in love, connected to you. Lord, as we go out into the world this week, We ask that you would use us as tools in your hand to show others the love of Christ, to present to them the good news gospel message. Lord, we give ourselves to you, and we thank you for giving yourself to us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You are dismissed.